On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, Neil Lumsden joins me on the brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio to talk politics, to talk a potential Olympic boycott, to talk Commonwealth Games in Hamilton, and even about passwords for your email and the nightmares and headaches that brings. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Friday evening, a day that... um, a day that I had to spend more time than I really wished to trying to change the password on my email. Anyone else get those notices now about every three months you have to change your password? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, first, let me introduce our my guest this evening to join us for a little while here to chat about a bunch of stuff. He His, his resume is long, and I was just jotting some things down here, and uh, it, it never seems to get any shorter. Uh, football player, Vanier Cup champion, Great Cup champion, Canadian Football Hall of Famer, uh, organizer of the World Cycling Championship, athletic director at Brock University, guy who ran his own marketing company, contender on the Amazing Race Canada, father of an Olympian. Probably forgot some other things on there. In fact, I sure I am, but his name is Neil Lumsden. Sir, how are you tonight? You did that exactly how I wrote it out for you, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've, I probably left out about 10 of the things, though. I uh, you know what? You're uh, many years from now, hopefully a long time. Your headstone is going to have to have special zoning clearance from the city because it's going to be three stories high to get everything in. I've been a lucky guy, and uh, that's all I have to say about that. Sounds very Forrest Gumpish, and that's all I have to say about that. Um, by the way, have you ever had? Do you ever get stuck when you were at Brock, especially? Do you ever get stuck with these stupid email change your password every few months, and then you can try and change it, and then you never remember what you put in, and you're stuck outside? Yeah, I was gonna see. I was funny when you mentioned. I went, okay, what is my password? I, I'm. Uh, I, I had you had to do that at Brock. Yes, every uh, probably three months, and I finally caught on. Probably a student told me the smart thing to do is write these down in a little book somewhere. But then you're exposed. So and don't put them on your phone. So uh, I I limit the the passwords that I have because I know guys that uh, and gals that have just simply you know have a book full of them, and I I, I just. No one's going to figure out, and I won't say that now because someone will try to figure it out, but mine's pretty tough to figure out. Well, so, okay, so I, as I was doing this today, because it, it wasn't working, no matter what password it asked me to create a new one, it tells you to put in your old one and then put in a new one. And no matter what I put in, it told me that it wasn't difficult enough and I needed to come up with one that was more difficult to guess. And it got to the point where there were 14 <laughs> letters with capital symbols and numbers. <laughs> And it's like, what is NORAD trying to break into the chorus entertainment? Like they're going to look at my show sheet. I mean, this is stupid. And then I went online to see what I was doing wrong. And it totally got me to completely off track. But Neil, do you know what the number one password is that people are still using in 2020? Apparently. Oh yeah. The password. The word one, password. two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, is, so if you ever want to break into someone's password email, I'm not guaranteeing you're going to get in and I'm not necessarily inciting you to commit a crime, but that's probably going to give you at least a fair fighting chance of getting past their security system. Hey, listen, buddy. Um, and you, I'm sure you're not, we know you're not encouraging anybody, but those that are out there that are trying to don't have to try anything. They're far, far, far more sophisticated as we are finding out by these random phone calls that we're getting from TRA and, you know, my cell phone isn't published. I don't, I do, almost nothing online as far as acquisition purchasing. I've tried to stay as, as low key as I possibly can yet. You know, I'm, I'm constantly being called by the CRA to go to court and I'm going to be arrested. Oh yes. Yes. I got one of those today too. 
Oh yeah, and then I get one that's in a language, maybe it's Cantonese. I have no idea what she's saying. Probably just the same sort of thing. It's just it's crazy out there, along with everything else. The very first time I got one of those calls from the CRA telling me that they were coming after me legally, uh, it was I was. I don't know what I was doing, but I was not in fully engaged mental place. Scared the crap out of me. What did I do? And then I realized, oh, okay, you know what? Yeah, I get it. It's a, I looked it up and it was a scam. Uh, anyway, password, by the way, you said password number four on the list of well, the easiest. Two? So one, two, three, four, five, six is the number one most used password. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, because when people really want to get complicated, they do that one. That's number wow. two. Picture one is number three password one two three four five six seven eight is five and my personal favorite number six one 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 <laughs> but you know the problem is neil you're i'm like you i've got i don't know how many how many email accounts or work things or whatever they tell you make a different one for everything yeah, I can right. I can barely remember my middle name and what I had for breakfast most days, let alone 15 different passwords and usernames and everything else. I, if I do different ones for everything, I'll never remember. Get that little notebook that we often use, and I, I love them. They're, they're smaller, hard-covered that I use for notes and meetings and things. Just put it in your drawer. Just don't identify it as anything specific and have one page and one page only uh, that you can refer to, and there you go. You, you will never be lost again, Scott. It's how probably better than my ID. Stu- how do you get to the studio, man? I mean, you, it's in my basement. You've got to have directions or. <laughs> no, it's just in my basement. I go down one flight of stairs and I'm there and I'm still oh, in my yeah. pajamas. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, my, my, your idea is way better than mine, which uh, is to put all my passwords on my phone. So one of these days oh, I'm going to lose no, my phone and then on, I'm man. completely snookered. What are you in the eighties? Let's go. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. Neil Lumsden, Renaissance man, done a little bit of everything. Uh, but Neil, one thing I don't think you've ever done, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you've ever won or run for or in any way sought public office, have you? Absolutely not. Uh, it, a, a real a side note, um, when I was in Edmonton, I was called at the near the end of my career for a meeting uh, with the... Uh, can't remember who it was. It was an ex-Eskimo who did, became who got involved in politics uh, on the provincial level. Uh, I won't say Pilahi, but I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember for sure. And he asked me. He said, "Look, are you at all interested? You, you know, you. I've had a radio show out there. I had done some things that you know I really enjoyed, and and we got lots of publicity as as the Edmonton Football Club are, do now, or as we're calling ourselves now." And uh, I, he explained it to me. We talked about it. And I, and I just, I didn't think it was right for me. I, uh, though I, I certainly do have and am inspired on a daily basis by people that are making a difference. And they need, there needs to be more good people that want to do that, uh, Lord knows, in the United States, but certainly here in Canada. Because when I look at the leadership model of what we, look, what we are now looking at in government, and I'm just, this is a, a blanket statement. This isn't specific that there needs to be better leadership in the country. There needs to be better leadership at a lot of levels. And that's the only thing that gets my, gets me going as well. You know, you, you always want to make a difference. That's why I've been coaching for 35 years and, and doing what I do because you want to make a difference. And at the same time, you, you want to do it better than anybody else. So, um, 
I, but I have not, and at this point don't plan to uh, pursue any office. That's what I left off your resume, by the way. Yates Cup champion coach for the Guelph University Griffins. I'll, I'll get back to that one later. Right. Uh, no, it, it, it is, um, the reason I ask is because recently, as I listen to all the politicians that are trying to do whatever they're trying to do with success or not success with COVID and everything else, I, I've just started to wrap my head around the point saying, are we expecting too much from politicians? And I don't mean to let them off the hook. And I don't mean to say that we should expect nothing from politicians, but I just, uh, you know, uh, like with a situation like we're in right now, what do you, what are we expecting from politicians? I mean, we somehow seem to think, I guess, that politicians can wave a magic wand in some way. Uh, The real, the thing they can do is control the levers of power and spend our money. And, you know, again, I, I may, maybe I'm being, maybe I'm missing the point here, but it seems to me that, I don't know, do, are we expecting magic where magic can't happen? Uh, you know, it's, that's a really good question, Scott. And um, it, it's strangely enough, I, I was thinking about this the other day and, and thinking, what, what do we expect from these people? Uh, our, uh, our expectations are normally uh, somewhat sort of around 60 to 70 percent. But I think what we expect is when things get rough and uh, when the rubber really meets the road, as that expression goes, that's when that leadership group has to elevate themselves and those around them. Because to me, it's, it's important to have great people around you as it is to have the ability yourself. Great leadership brings people together because people want to be part of that movement or, or, or believe in what that leader is talking about and in turn become leaders themselves. That's the, the organic growth. And that's what makes sports so wonderful that you see those pods of individuals come out and move on on their own, uh, become coaches, become leaders in, in certain industries and just go on professionally and have great success. So I think at times we do expect a little bit too much because we can't, you know, anything short of, going down the street and and challenging people on this whole mask thing, especially in the United States that come on, like this isn't a hoax. This isn't funny. People are dying. Let's get rid of this thing and be smart about this. And most of the population, certainly in Canada have responded, not unlike you would in a team environment where the head coach or, or the organization says, this is how we do things here. And this is how we plan on moving forward until it gets right. And most Canadians understand that and haven't bought into it because I don't like that term. It's like I'm buying into this because, well, everyone else is doing it. No, they see that this is the right thing to do and they do it. But I don't even know, Neil, that those knuckleheads out there that are, are out, you know, having parties, I don't care what age they are and not, I mean, common sense is long gone like long gone, right? There's no such party in it, such thing. You don't see it very often anymore. But to me, that's, you know, where we expect, do I expect Ford to be tougher? I did. And, and he was tough early and I expect him to be tough now because I think he has to be. But the problem is look at the ramifications. That's the, that, and that's the problem. That's the problem with this is there isn't a right answer. I don't think And I want to stress this again, that I am not, giving politicians a free pass for everything that's happened here. 
But Neil, I you know, as as I say, I've been thinking about this, thinking about this this week, and the main credential that many politicians have in their current position is that we elected them, and you know, I know they have backgrounds in other business and other things like that, but it seems to me when I listen and it's not, I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's across the spectrum, different parties and everything else. It's not just going one way. We seem to all expect that somehow politicians by the nature of the job are going to be able to snap their fingers and things get fixed. And if anything goes wrong, it can never be our fault. It must be their fault. And some of it is their fault, but I just, I don't know. It it just, it started to strike me that maybe we're just expecting a miracle when they are not qualified to deliver a miracle. Well, I, uh, well, they're not qualified, and no one. Uh, hey, Scott, no one is ever going to be qualified to deliver that miracle. But what they, you know, I mean, the two important things are: one is they've got anybody in those positions have to surround themselves with the expertise to deal with any specific issue, no matter what it is. And of course, it's medical now, and you listen to the science, and you follow the science. But you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link, and unfortunately, politicians in their situations, unlike a business or corporation where you have hands-on control over employees or a football team where people are not following the rules and you don't, you choose not to keep them around because they will drag everybody down. And it only takes a couple and you've seen it in sport and you've seen it in business that that's what the politicians are up against that, you know, it's the old expression. You can't teach stupid, no matter what you say to some people, they're not going to buy in. And those are the ones that destroy and wreck plans and, in many cases, have destroyed families by not just following a simple protocol of putting a mask on, protecting yourself, your, uh, the person around you, and the people at home. And I don't care who we're talking about in, in a leadership role. You, you can't force them. You can try to. And I know the signs in stores saying, look, you can't get in without a mask. And then there's those that, well, you can't restrict my rights as a human. Like, okay. Everyone step back and stop it for a second here. If you can't recognize that there's a a massive problem around the world right now and aren't willing to participate, there's not much you can do as a politician to say, well, okay, you know, we're going to fine you $10,000. Maybe that's what it has to come down to is that as tough as people may think this is, you know, what's the percentage? 90%, 85% of the people are following the protocols. The ones that aren't, fine them. But where are the politicians, Neil? Where are the politicians that are succeeding at this? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll list two who are succeeding at this. One is in Australia, one is in New Zealand, where they have very few cases. They are also uniquely geographically positioned, though, that it's pretty easy for them to cut themselves off from the rest of the world Absolutely. as an island. And yeah. they did that. Other countries, though, where... So you would expect that in a normal you know, normal situation, some politicians will have done really well and some will have not done well. You can count the number who have really succeeded on less than one hand. Everybody is failing seemingly in this thing. So does that say then, because every politician is now under the gun and is basically failing at this with those few exceptions, does it not say maybe we're looking at the wrong place for answers here? I'm not, I'm not, uh, honestly, I'm not sure. And I don't think if you transplant any, any of those people from New Zealand or Australia to Canada or in the United States, that we would be any better off. I, I think there's a I lot agree. to do with I agree. people have success. Scott. No, I, I agree with a you. A couple of them, right? So there is no clear definitive answer on this, except people accept what they are the responsibility 
of trying to take care of themselves and those neighbors and family around them. And if you can't make that sacrifice, because it goes back to those businesses. I mean, I try on a regular basis and, and do my friends to, you know, eat out more, take out. I uh, try to keep uh, businesses energized, do things that will help the economy. I, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people, hundreds of people that are doing the same sort of thing. But it'll just take a few that uh, went out of Halloween. I mean, that was one of the, the tracing models in, in the NCAA that all the, all the outbreak or, or the, the cases of COVID-19 after Halloween and after the, some college football. Look what happened in Notre Dame. All the people rushing onto the field, masks are down. Thousands, thousands of them. The place wasn't even full because they, be, they be, beat Clemson and they, now they go down and celebrate. And then after that, you know, next thing coming is Thanksgiving for them. And, you know, then what do you do? It's, this is a, in some way. And where I will. And you damned if you don't, Scott. Yeah. And Neil, where I will point the finger of blame at politicians is that we have seen examples also where if the cause is seen as being on the right side of history. So when Biden won, we saw politicians down in the States, politicians standing with a bunch of other people in crowds gathering, not necessarily wearing masks and saying, yes, but we understand when there were rallies for social justice issues, we saw people saying, yeah, but you know what? It's important. Look, you, you, you simply can't have it both ways. If you want to argue that you cannot get together with other people because that's the safety thing, you've got to be consistent. And any politician that's going to start waffling and saying, well, if the situation is important enough, then it's okay, is somehow suggesting that COVID is not just dangerous, but so woke as a virus that it will recognize whether or not the people gathering are doing it for a just reason and will skip over the people if it's for a good cause. But the people gathering for a football game, well, they're idiots. And so we'll land on them. It doesn't work like that. And so those are the politicians that I'll point my finger at and say, look, you got to be consistent. And if you can't even be consistent, then, then I will say, absolutely. Blame is on you. Oh, I'm with you a hundred percent. And I'll be right beside you pointing fingers. And there are lots of people to point fingers at and we are and we are sort of godsmacked every day watching the news, especially in the U.S., of those leaders that have months ago said, no, nah, it's not a big deal, and we're going to lift the curfews, and we're going to do this, and we've got, you know, okay. You really didn't pay attention to what the other parts of the world were doing, who was having success, and how you manage this thing. You just didn't care, or you didn't believe it. And when I guess if you're following certain people in the U.S., and maybe in, in any other part of the world, and those that are ignoring the facts and the science and saying it's not a big deal. Well, if the guy that's in charge says it's not a big deal, it must not be a big deal. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. So some Canadian politicians came out this week and said, you know what? Uh, we got to start thinking about boycotting the 2022 Beijing Olympics. Uh, that Canada should perhaps stay home from that one rather than participating in helping China celebrate its party. I know you are a passionate Olympic follower, having had a son who competed in two or three, I can't remember now, Olympics. Um, what, a, what about the idea of a boycott? We've seen it before. What about doing it again? Well, and, and you can add to that along with yourself and a bunch of others, passionate Canadians and, and love to compete and, and love to see our athletes, whether they're related to us or not, be at their best and have an opportunity to show that how good they are on the world stage. 
having said that, I think if you ask Canadians, Canadian athletes um, who have might have a chance to go there and compete, they would probably side with the, okay, we've had enough. We're not going to put up with this anymore. Uh, we are not going to go. And I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think that, you know, the other side of that is if, if sport is going to do it, then the leadership group in government has to do the same sorts of things um, on the same edge of that cliff, if you will, to put pressure on them. And then, I, you know, uh, hopefully other parts of the world will follow. And I think that I do. I really think that they would. Uh, it's uh, sometimes you've got, you know, change is tough. And especially when you're talking about the treatment of, you know, your fellow man, whether he, they're Canadian or not, you got to stand up sometimes, Scott. And I think you would agree with this. And it's as tough as it can be, hey, uh, that's the way to go. There's something that's sometimes more important than competition, even though you've. I'm, I'm very surprised, Neil. I'm surprised, and not that not that I don't think that you're a guy with a conscience by any stretch, but I'm I'm surprised that you would. Um, I, I hadn't expected that answer from you, honestly. Well, I, I, I have a conscience, not much of one though. Um, no, no, I, that, I'm not saying that at all. I just knowing, especially having been there and having seen it and knowing what athletes put into it, because look in, in all these cases, the athletes become the pawns and it's totally unfair to the athletes. That's there's, that's an unquestionable position when you're going to do something like this, if it were to happen, it's totally unfair to the athletes, but it becomes a bigger cause and they become the pawns in that game. Well, if you want to if you want to drill that down and just and take the, the scenario you talk about out of the equation for a second and talk about associations, Olympic associations, governments standing behind their athletes when other athletes in other countries are clearly breaking the rules on a competitive level on the cheating side on performance enhancing drugs. So, you know, it, we know Russia did it. And I know a little bit about other countries just over the years. And if to think for one second that many of the countries are not cheating with respect to performance enhancing drugs is, is, is naive. So yep. I, I think you can go a step further uh, aside from the human rights piece of it, just to drilling down in their own world. At some point you got to stand up and say, wait a second, is it even fair? Uh, what I'm going to compete in, is it even an equal playing field anymore? You know, that Russian team in the, in the bobsled, which is close to my heart, and, you know, they want a gold, and you're talking about a sport that's in hundreds of seconds, or thousands of seconds, and someone would say to me, well, yeah, but they were, you know, they got off it last year. They were, you know, they were tested, and they haven't taken a year. So you're telling me that all the three or four years beforehand, when they were on, perform- whatever it was, you think that everything left their body, the strength that they've gained from doing it, whatever they took for four years is going to drop away. Are you kidding me? They got it for life. Or yeah, but you've got competitive life. Is. So let's be realistic about this whole thing. Let's, let's go back and start holding these people's feet to the fire on the competitive level in sport. And that just to me translates now to the human rights side of it. So sure it yeah, does. I'm, sure it does because you've got the biggest countries who are the most powerful with the most money who contribute the most to the IOC into the yeah. games, and you're not going to tell them to go screw off or that we're pulling the games from your country if you don't fix your human rights. Look, they the IOC had a chance to do this prior to the Beijing Olympics in two thousand and eight. 
I think was Beijing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there were, there were stories of, of people who were cleaned out of neighborhoods. So construction could be done and all kinds of other things. They had all kinds, the IOC had all kinds of opportunities to say, look, we, if you want the games, you do things, but that seems to not be an issue at all. For the record, I don't really expect this will ever happen, but if you were ever going to do this, it would seem to be an empty uh, move and a very, um, I don't know, sort of sad thing to do just to harm athletes. If you don't follow it up with a whole series of other things that say, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. We're following this up with more than just this. Well, and I think there's a whole other side of the two, Scott, we're talking about, you know, sort of the, the 10,000 foot view of this whole thing. I, I think the, the reality is if something like that was going to happen, you create momentum by getting other uh, co- countries to come with you. Look, this is about money. And if you, if you pop the balloon enough or enough balloons and they realize that there's a whole lot of money going to be lost to that, which includes television rights. And if you talk about that part of it uh, and, and really make potentially make a dent in what it's all about for them, that's how you find, that's how you make the change. It isn't a singular thing. It's a combination of things that creates great power. And then once you've created that, that you brought all those parties together, then you come you, you know, it's a joint effort. It's not just someone standing out in the crowd saying, well, we're not doing it. And, you know, uh, I'm sorry about our athletes. No, no, let, let's not, uh, let's, gr- let's uh, get a crowd together here. Let's create some real force and impact it where it hurts. The way you make change is hurt people where they don't want to get hurt. And it's financial, especially in this situation. So to me, that's how you go about doing it. It's not about one. It's about somebody starting it. And then you bring a large group, you bring power together by people and, and associations and uh, Olympic committees. And that's how you make the change. Yeah. I, I don't see uh, too many countries that are lining up to provoke China at this point. That's the, that's going to be the issue. And, you know, whether or not you think that they should be provoked and whether or not you, they think that this kind of move, if you could get, you know, a whole bunch of countries to say we're out. Uh, truth is as much as we like ourselves, and think, you know, that we're reasonably important. On the world stage, Neil, um, we're really not. If Canada says we're not coming to the Winter Olympics, yeah, we win a bunch of medals. But really, you know, China's going to go, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't really think that China's foreign policy is going to change. But it doesn't just become Canada. That's the whole No, it has to be more. Oh, it has to be a lot more. And that that calls for some action, but, but it also calls for some... Again, I'll use the word leadership from a specific group to bring people together because that's where the power comes from. And it's easy, you know, it's easy for me to sit up here in the loft at, in Hamilton at our place and say, okay, you could do this, this, this. You know, I know it's not simple. And I do not want to take anything away from our young athletes of all the work that they've done. God knows, or I know how tough it is and how frustrating it can be. But if you want to make a difference, and we're really talking about making a difference, then it's not the athlete's role to do it but it's the associations, it's the larger groups, um, by threatening to hurt the committee, the host committee, where it hurts the most. And you do that with lots of people, lots of, lots of support from Olympic committees across the, the world, and say, hey, look, I know there's a political side, and, and there's so much more to this, this recipe, if you will. But that's how, you have, that has, that's how it has to get started. Do you think in this case, Neil, do you think in this case with China though, do you think it is a money thing or is it more of a prestige thing 
that it would be it, that you would be you can't affect China's economy all that much. Canada can't, but you can at least try and put a dent if you believe that they're doing wrong things. You can make them look bad, or maybe try to embarrass them into some sort of diplomacy. Well, certainly that. I mean, I do think it is. It's an economic. It could be an economic hit, especially when you're talking about television and rights. But yeah, I think it's the other side of it as well. It's again, it's, none of this is one dimensional. It's multi dimensional as far as pulling it together and the impact. And it, uh, listen, this would it would take a Herculean effort to do something like this. It really would. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, as I say, I I really don't expect that this will go anywhere largely because I'm not entirely sure in my memory. I mean, it's a, it's a few years back and I was a young man. I, I was a kid really. And, and you were a very young man when, uh, when we boycotted, um, yeah. Russia, when the States and, and I, you know, I'm trying to think back and think how much of an impact did that really have? And I'm not sure it had all that much of an impact except to then f- cause Russia then, or the Soviet union to boycott Los Angeles. But even then, did 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 anything in the world truly change as a result of that? Did the Soviets change their policy, or did the states change their policy because of the boycotts? I don't think so. Well, and I think in, in a lot of these cases, and and uh, after the next break, I have a couple questions for you, by the way, so so I don't go away. But I I, I think that <laughs> the um, uh, I'd like to have seen them address and address aggressively and pro- uh, 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 and a while ago about this the doping issues that they've been dealing with as far back as whenever, right? Or when it, when it came to prominence for me, it was the Ben Johnson thing. I, I'm sure, I know it was around well before that, but that's when it became prominent in my world. Um, and ever since, it's been something that's been abused. And uh, and I'm not just talking about Russia or China. Oh, no, no, no. It, it, is, uh, it, is, it is lots of places. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Neil Lumsden, who... Can I ask you a question now? Yes, of course you can. So we just came out of the Masters. Yes. And there was a, there's a whole bunch of hullabaloo, as there has been for a while, with Bryson DeChambeau and his, the changing of his body type as he came into yes. the season. 30 pounds heavier, you know, everyone's comparing to the body type of a linebacker and yada, yada. And there's no question that he is uh, explosive uh, hitting the golf ball. And, uh, you know, he, he is looked at in many ways by the, as a mad professor because he's changed his game. And a lot of people think that maybe he is changing the game. What do you think? Well, just for a little bit of a fill in here for the few people that don't necessarily know, uh, Bryson DeChambeau a year ago was, I'm not going to say a slim guy, but he was not, he's a golfer and he was, as Neil says, he has jacked up. I mean, in, in, in less than a year, he is now the incredible Hulk of the golf world, which sounds odd because once upon a time to say a guy was a Hulk and a muscular guy in golf would have been, you would have laughed at them, but and now he hits the ball a trillion miles and everyone, you know, has all kinds of questions and everything. Um, I, I, Neil, normally I would say that we would, we love the big hitters in golf more often than not. And I don't dislike Bryson DeChambeau, but I quite enjoyed the fact that that course humbled him and that he had a really pretty lousy time at Augusta, all things considered, mostly because for two reasons, one, because he came in where it wasn't just his body that was jacked up, but apparently his ego was too. And he was talking a game that made him sound like he was the love child of Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods, which he isn't. Uh, and secondly, 
you know, I don't want someone in any sport to scientifically or physiologically or whatever, figure out the sport so that you can't win unless you're that type of athlete anymore. I, I don't want someone to, as I say, figure it out. I want it to be every week. He could win. Someone else could win, but it's not just the guy who can hit the ball longest. Yeah, I, it's a very interesting, and I and I like that approach. I I was talking to um, I play at the Beverly Golf and Country Club, and I was before the before it started or after the it was over. I talked to Darren, one of the, the golf pros there, cleanups and everything, and I said, "Here's my analogy. I'm certainly not a pro golfer, but I I look at Bryson DeChambeau as trying to bully a golf course with his length, even though that the young guys." can hit the ball a long way. They still hit the ball a long way. And the game was changed, you know, by Arnold and then Jack and then Tiger and Tiger on the, certainly on the fitness side, you saw the sort of the next generation of golfers coming through that were stronger, more fit. Um, I, I, I compared Bryson DeChambeau to a closed wheel NASCAR racer that would run the Indy 500 where there's left turns only. You get as much horsepower as you can and you go like hell as long as you can until it burns out versus um, an open wheel race uh, where uh, as an example, Hamilton has won another Grand Prix, but a different kind of racer that has great speed if they need it in the race on straightaway, but it takes finesse. It takes understanding the course. It takes passing and, and drafting behind people and all the other little things that are so integral to having a great success on an open wheel kind of course and two very different kinds of races, but the guys that win the races more often in the golf are the guys that can do so many things and don't just think about powering, overpowering a golf course. And I don't think that style of golf will ever become popular. Number one, it's interesting, but it's not, it's not here to stay. And I think you'll see him tweak back down a little bit. I mean, Here's a guy who has the same length of clubs, a six iron length, whereas most clubs go from nine iron wedge, you know, shorter to a two or three iron. It's a little bit longer in the shaft. His are all the same. They're all six iron length and his grips are larger. I mean, he really has looked, has created something that is fascinating to watch, but that will, in my humble opinion, will not be successful. Uh, I I just certainly in the, uh, the big tournaments in the U S other courses. Yeah. But when you talk about, the Masters and the Open, no. British Open, no. Uh, I don't want to see it in any sport, Neil. I don't want to see necessarily someone who comes along and physiologically becomes so incredibly dominant that the only way you can compete is to match them physiologically. I don't want it. I don't want a day when you find a seven foot eight guy who is also unbelievably athletic and in basketball where he dominates the game so intensely. Like there have been some crazy tall guys in basketball, Manute Bull, um, who was seven foot six, seven foot seven. And you know, there were things that he could do in the game, but he was not a dominant player because what he gained in height, he gave up in weight and, and core strength and size. And so, but I don't want the freak to come along who then is unstoppable simply because of his body type. I don't want the pitcher in baseball who has some, 
Um, remember that? Remember that funny movie? It was a kids' movie, both mainly, but it was called Rookie of the Year about the kid who broke his arm one time, and then it, yeah. when it, when it reset, he could throw the ball like nine hundred miles an hour. Uh, obviously, you know, stupid, but I don't want the person who comes along with a physiological quirk that can somehow be the first person ever to throw a baseball 150 miles an hour instead of a hundred. And now it is impossible to compete with somebody simply because of that. I always want sports to have an element of skill and an element of thinking and creativity and other things, not just raw brute strength. Yeah. Those, those kinds of people in male or female will dominate a portion of a sport like minute bull but they won't dominate the sport, just a piece of it. And that's where they fall short. Well, who's the most dominant woman that we've seen in sports lately? I mean, I would argue that probably the most dominant woman we've seen in sports, the two of them that come to mind, one is Serena Williams uh, in tennis, and one would be Ronda Rousey in fighting. And then what happened? Well, both, while dominant, had areas, had ways you could beat them if you played or took them on the right way. And yeah, if, think- if you remove that and so that they are so overwhelmingly physically dominant that even if you put all the other things together, you still can't beat them. There's no sports left. Yeah. I think Ronda Rousey was, a, was a, a, not a flash in the pan, but she had a lot of things going for her in, since her career. And she wasn't a great fighter. She was good at the time because again, she was one of those people that changed the sport a little bit based on who she was. But, it wasn't a long-term thing. I, you know, there's a guy, and I no. forget the, this gal's name in basketball in the U.S., played pro basketball, and she has been, she's dominated the sport for a lot of years. She's been tremendous. Um, yeah, I, I just, uh, you've got to keep changing in sport. That's the one thing, because the game changes. And if you can't adapt and adjust, uh, you're in big trouble. And that's what the greats have always done. They become unflappable mentally and physically, and they change as the game changes. And they still become successful. And that's what makes guys like in, in the game of golf, Palmer, Nicholas, uh, Tiger Woods, and others coming down the pipe now that uh, will make them great. Yeah. I mean, would, would, I, would I think the same of Tiger Woods or Jack Nicholas as, you know, the world's best, I would argue, and Arnold Palmer can go in there, best golfers. If when you looked at the way they played, Tiger Woods always hit the ball long and hit the ball longer than some guys, but not 50 or 60 or 70 yards longer, maybe 20. Would I look at them differently if they simply hit the ball so unbelievably far that nobody else could possibly compete? Yeah, I would, because then I would no longer think of them as the greatest golfers. I would think of them as genetic or physiological freaks who happen to play golf. And and they're the ones that... that do things in pieces of the game, but not the game in general. You know, while we're talking about sports and sports issues, I want to move off sports per se, but onto a sports issue. You're a guy who, um, as I said, off the top of the show, uh, for people who don't know this, you have worked, um, as a, well, you've been a football player. You're in the hall of fame. You've won championships. You have been a manager of a team, the Thai cats that won a great cup championship. You, so you, you've run the business. You've helped to run the world cycling championship. You've done all kinds of other things. You were athletic director at Guelph university. So you know, the business Brock, side Brock, of, sorry, uh, Brock, sorry, Brock, at Brock. Yeah. Uh, a, a, D, uh, yeah. Brock. Sorry, of course. Um, 
we are now, it's gone a little bit quiet for the last number of weeks with everything going on, but we are still in the midst seemingly of the city of Hamilton debating and pondering whether or not to jump in with the Commonwealth Games. Um, and, and the debate seems not to be about the sports per se, but about will all the peripheral things, housing and blah, 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 on and on and on, will all these things, do you believe that if Hamilton were to take the Commonwealth Games, that it would be a financial gigantic windfall that would change the city? Well, the, the one thing I've learned uh, before making a comment of whether I do or don't is first seeing the numbers and seeing what the costs and what the impact and the, and the long-term, uh, the legacy piece is, is as it relates to revenue back coming back into the community. And that legacy piece uh, is, so, it can, is so vital and so important. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to say that one or the other, Scott, because I, I don't know and I don't want to comment unless I, someone said, well, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. This is the kind of revenues. Here's the impact. Here's our costs. This is what we can do. Here's the peripheral. I mean, there's so much that goes to an event like this that um, there are so many what I refer to as trigger points of opportunity. And unless you can really execute those trigger points and it goes to other uh, outside the sport, like hotels, like restaurants, like businesses, the economic impact, all of them are really big. And though people will say, well, it doesn't impact me. And I heard this in cycling. Well, you know, it doesn't help me. Well, no, but it helps other people in business. So that's a good thing. Not everything has to help the, that one individual. But if when you look at things as, as a whole, if it's going to help the community and the city and those communities and, and cities around the core, then it's a good thing. But that has to be evaluated. And not just talked about, but there has to be an example of how it's going to do and what the result's going to be. So it's a, that's a deep pond to jump into. And those that are working on it, I'm sure, are doing those scenarios because they're so vital to make sure that the money would go. I, I, listen, I, you know, we lost let, me, let me rephrase it then. Let me ask you a different question on the same topic. I, I'm, I, one of my areas of concern with the Commonwealth Games is that I'm not sure there is a whole lot of buzz or excitement around the games themselves. I'm not talking about the infrastructure or things that might come. Mm-hmm. How important you, you were involved in the world cycling championship, which had, you know, which did well in this city, even though we didn't necessarily have a huge background in international cycling at that time. If you bring the Commonwealth games here, even if people right now say, Oh, it's not the Olympics. It's not even the Pan Am games. I, you know, I, I, I really don't care. Even if people are saying that now, if you drop a multi-sport games into the city, is it your belief that just by osmosis people will buy in? No, it just doesn't happen. And, and look, I'll talk to what I know and my involvement in the world cycling. And I was brought in by David Braley, um, who sadly passed. And I was going to say, and, and you know, He's he's a, a guy that did so much for this community and this country, especially in the CFL. He's going to be sorely missed. But, you know, I was brought in by he and Trace Quigley because the original group was not living up to the expectation that they thought. So 14, 16 months out, I was asked to come in and take over as the CEO, COO and the GM. So from that point on, uh, it was our job to sell it. We weren't expecting people to come. Uh, people would say, oh, cycling, that's not a big deal. Not in Canada. Um, oh, you'll never make any money for cycling in Canada. Oh, you'll never do this, you'll never do that. And a lot of that was some of the politicians. 
well, you can't do this and you can't create pods in areas and neighborhoods because you can't cut off access. Well, you can. And, and so the plan is so vitally important. What I found was very successful for us was town hall meetings in the communities in the area around that we, that we would affect as a result of uh, this international spectacle. Um, and it was a chance for us as in Hamiltonians and people in our region to benefit from it long term. So you have to go to, to make an assumption that people are going to buy tickets just because you're there is a fool's game. It isn't any sport um, unless you're the NFL um, because they just come and they love their football. So uh, I think if with the right plan, absolutely it could be successful. You get the right people in place. And when those people have the right plan and they execute it over a period of time, because it's, you know, doing things in a fire drill is really tough. And we didn't, I would have loved another six or seven months. Having said that, the people that we brought together, both on the sports side and the business side, were nothing but short of spectacular. And almost all of them were local. People from our region stepped up, did the job, got paid to do a job, and did, a, you know, an unbelievable job at it. And television was tremendous. Uh, the revenues were through the roof. I think we just under a million dollars that came back to cycling in the community when everyone expected, oh, yeah, you'll never be able to do that. Well, it was done because of the plan and great execution by a lot of people. And, it, and it's contagious. That's the one thing about sport. Uh, you, get, you get things rolling and you show people they can have a lot of fun and they can enjoy it and it's special. And it's a world-class event. People come watch, especially those that are interested in the sport. And then the benefit, then it's the next level of people that want to come out that might not be cycling fans, but I want to be part of it because I've heard of this and this is great. And it's downtown's closed off. It's going to be so much fun. It's like a party. It's, it's what you do to present it and pre-sell it. It's just people to assume people are going to come because it's the Commonwealth games or anything else. It's, it's a big mistake. And I, I'm assuming, or I'm going to make that assumption that people aren't doing that. The organizers that they're hard after putting a plan together to engage and bring people out. Still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, I, I bumped my microphone cord right when you were done talking and all of a sudden I thought, oh, I just cut the whole thing off. I, it was a, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it is, um, I, I hope, I mean, if it comes, my, that's my concern. My concern with this is, you know, I'm sure the infrastructure would come. I, I know these are very difficult economic times. That's a whole different, that is a whole different thing. The sure. timing for this could not probably have been worse. Um, but it's, will there be people who will, want to come out and watch the Isle of Man versus Bermuda in lawn bowling. And I, you know, that, that's, um, there are some things that will sell and there are some things that are going to be uh, a tougher one. Um, you know, and, and you just hope that it's, uh, if we do this and I don't know, cause I say it's gone kind of quiet right now, not off the books. It's just other things are going on right now. You just, you, you, you hope you hope that's all you can, that's all you can do. And, Wait and see what happens. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.